take your Bible or the Bible that's in the hymn book rack in front of you and open it to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the hymn book rack, I think you'll find the text on page 1123. And I would like everybody to turn to that because I would like us to read it together out loud. This is one of the key verses for understanding what the Christian life is about, and it would really be great for us if we became so familiar with it that it was just burned into our hearts and into our minds. And one of the ways that happens is by um, reading over and over again uh, the verses of, of Scripture. So, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, join me please. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we would pray that you would help us to understand fully all that is in this verse, uh, why it is key to Christian living. Help us, Father, to not only know this verse and that which is contained therein uh, in an intellectual way, but help us, Father God, to practice what is here, to heed what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. Father, it's so important for us. Father, as Jay has mentioned earlier, we are here to glorify you and to enjoy you forever, and yet sometimes we live like we're here to glorify ourselves and to just completely enjoy ourselves here in this life. And Father, in taking that approach, um, we neither glorify you nor enjoy what we're doing. Father, speak to us. If there are people here today who haven't yet received Jesus, we're so glad they're here. We pray, Father, that they would find this a place where they can ask questions, where uh, people will not be troubled by the struggles they have with the gospel. But we pray, Father, that they would be open and that we would have answers for them and that they would come to know Jesus as Savior. Prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord, Father. Help us to see in the sacrament that is before us the awesome sacrifice that you provided for us to take away our sins. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it's very important to note that the required sacrifices didn't take away sins, the sins of those offering them ex opere operato. Now, that's Latin for from the work or from the act itself. Forgiveness did not automatically follow the act of sacrifice. It wasn't like you put the sacrifice in the sacrificial vending machine and forgiveness came out to you. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that though the sacrifices were necessary in order for the worshipers to be ceremonially and outwardly clean before God, and we're told that in Hebrews 9.13, there was a greater purpose that was served by the offering of them. The violent, bloody deaths of the sacrificial animals reminded the offerers 
that they were worthy of physical and spiritual death, spiritual death being separation from God forever, and that the only way they could escape damnation was if a victim not subject to the penalty that runs with sin died in their place. The Old Testament sacrificial system was designed by God to be temporary. It provided visual aids to the faith of the worshipers. Its sacrifices pointed, to the, worship, pointed the worshipers to Messiah Savior, who would one day come, appearing once for all, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26. Shortly after Adam and Eve committed humanity's first sin, and we don't know exactly when this happened, God revealed to them that a Savior would be born into the world to take away the sins of all who trusted in that Savior. We see this in Genesis 3.15 and in 3.21. In Genesis 3.15, in the hearing of Adam and Eve, the serpent is told by God that the serpent and his seed would bruise the heel of the one who was coming to make atonement, but that the one who was coming from the bodies of the original parents would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the serpent, destroy Satan completely. Our first ancestors and all who came from their bodies who trusted in the promised Messiah sacrifice had their sins forgiven and received the gift of eternal life. These sacrifices uh, that these Old Testament believers offered were holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace which, was which were instituted by God to present Christ and his benefits and to confirm their interest in him. That's the Westminster Confession, chapter 29, as it talks about sacraments. And today, we will participate in one of those sacraments, the Lord's Supper. When God gave Moses the laws for the nation of Israel, much liturgical detail, much ritual, was added to the simple acts of sacrifice that had taken place before the law of Moses came. The animal was chosen by the worshiper, it was chosen to be sacrificed from among the sheep, the goats, or the bulls in most cases. The sacrifice that was to be offered had to be without defect, we are told in Leviticus 22, 21 and following. It could not have a genetic defect. It could not have any signs of having had a serious injury. It could not be diseased. It could not have age-related infirmities. Those defects are the result of sin, the sin that Adam and his progeny have brought into the world, we are told in Romans 8.21. The animal was to picture the sinless Son of God whose coming had been promised. Since the substitute for sinners that was coming was to be holy, blameless, pure, and set apart from sinners, Hebrews 7.26, it was only fitting that the animals that pictured him should be without the defects that come, that come because of sin. 
the Old Testament worshiper presented his sacrifice, his sacrificial animal, to God at the courtyard of the tent of meeting and later the tabernacle in Jerusalem when it was constructed. We are told in Leviticus 3.2 that the offerer laid his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. And we believe, based on what the high priest does in Leviticus 16.21, that the individual offerer, when he laid his hands on that sacrifice, confessed his sins over the animal. In placing his hands on the animal, the, worship was, the worshiper was identifying himself with the sacrifice. And his confession represented a symbolic transference of his sin to an innocent victim, an animal that had not sinned and didn't deserve to die. You see the picture? The animal then stood as a substitute for the worshiper. The worshiper was the one subject to the wrath of God in facing physical and spiritual death. Transference took place symbolically. After that symbolic transfer of the worshiper's sin, the worshiper slaughtered the animal, Leviticus 3.2. No doubt he did that by plunging a knife into the neck of the animal. A priest then, having collected the blood, sprinkled the blood around the altar of sacrifices against the sides of it in the courtyard there in the tabernacle or the temple. The offering was then washed and it was flayed and it was placed on um, the altar of sacrifice. Moses, writing God's word with regard to the transaction, informs us in Leviticus 1.9 that the sacrifice was burned and when the sacrifice was properly made, it was a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, and this is the part we want to get, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. We want to see this morning that we can bring pleasure to Almighty God. When Paul writes the words of Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What he writes is intended to have his readers think about the Old Testament ritualistic sacrifice that I have just described for you. And both Moses and Paul tell believers Old Testament anew that they as individuals can bring pleasure to Almighty God. That is one of the most amazing truths that you will find in all of Scripture. Moses tells us that when an Old Testament believer in the coming Messiah brought a sacrifice that met God's standards and sacrificed in the way that God had specified, that the God who created all things and sustains all things, keeps the universe together, not only found the offering to be acceptable to him, but he found it to be a sacrifice in which he himself delighted. And that is the literal meaning of what is translated in the NIV in Leviticus 1.9 as pleasing to the Lord. 
God was pleased with the sacrifice of the individual, and his heart delighted in the sacrifice that the worshiper made. Now, let's do a little, a little sanctified, hopefully, speculation as to why the God who needs nothing at all from us finds pleasure and delight in such offerings. Now, we're helped in figuring this out, why that is, by looking at other places in Scripture where sacrifice takes place. In Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 20, we have one of those places. There God tells Israel, I have no pleasure in your sacrifices. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Now, when you read that whole passage in Isaiah, you see that the worshipers there were going through the mechanics of the worship ritual that I described to you, but their hearts were not engaged in the spiritual meaning of the sacrifice. They thought the sacrifice worked ex opere operato. They came to the altar with offerings that were designed to witness to their acknowledgement of their sin and their promise to turn from it, but they went away from worship hanging on to their sin, and they had never once had an intention to give it up. When the Old Testament worshiper placed his hands on the sacrificial animal and plunged the knife, he was supposed to do that out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of God's mercy in the coming Messiah, and he was to do that with grief and hatred of his sin, turning from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, that's the answer to question 87 of our shorter catechism, and the question there is, what is repentance unto light? The worshiper was to come repenting of his sin, it wasn't taking place in Isaiah's day. When the offer offered an animal with that kind of heart attitude, when he had that heart attitude, an attitude of repentance and faith, God was pleased with the offering. He delighted in the offering. And why would that be? He had the worshiper's body and soul. He had the worshiper's heart as well as the outward act. The Old Testament system of sacrifice ended when Christ died for sinners. Animal sacrifice was no longer relevant. Colossians 2.17 tells us that that Old Testament ritual, ritual was designed to, protect, to picture the atoning work of the Christ, the Messiah, who would come, and now he is here. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 tells us this. Day after day, in the Old Testament cult, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never in themselves take away sin. But when this priest, that is Christ, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You see, you have the blueprint for the coming Messiah and his work in the Old Testament. Now the building is built. You don't need the blueprint 
anymore. God intended it to be that way from forever. St. Paul in Romans 12:1, using the language of the former worship system, informs you, informs me, that we can be an aroma pleasing to God, a sacrifice in which God's heart delights. Now, does that knowledge move you emotionally? I mean, when we think about it, it really should. This truth should amaze and excite us. Maybe we can get there if we think about who God is. Think about it for a few moments. I'm using the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They summarize the teaching of Scripture with regard to who God is. There we read, God is infinite in His being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, immutable, immense. He fills all of space, of everything, eternal. He's incomprehensible. You can't begin to understand the infinite mind and wisdom of God. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things, the smallest thing, according to the counsel of his immutable, that's unchangeable, and holy, righteous will for his own glory. God is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and he's most just and terrible in his judgments and hating all sin. Now, with that description of God in mind, think about what you and I are like on our very best days. We're not infinite. We are finite. We are not omnipotent. We are weak. We are self-centered. We are half-hearted in our obedience to God. We perform good deeds, but we do it with mixed motives. We never love God with all our hearts and with all our soul and with all our minds, and we never come close to loving our neighbors in the way we love ourselves. And yet Paul reveals the heart of Almighty God to us, and he tells us that we can live our lives in the here and now in a way that brings pleasure to God in a way that causes God's heart to experience delight. Now, can you think of any higher purpose for living than that? What can you think of that you would rather do with your life than to bring pleasure and delight to God in the way you live it? Second and last point, how can you bring pleasure to God? You bring pleasure and delight to God when you sacrifice yourself entirely to God in the way the Old Testament believers sacrificed the animal of his flock or herd. Listen again to the words of Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, that's all that you are, stands for your soul as well, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. The word offer is a technical word that relates to sacrifice. It has with it the meaning of arranging the butchered parts of the sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. 
The carcasses of the Old Testament sacrifice were placed there, and they were consumed by the fire of the altar in minutes. But you see, the sacrifice that we make of ourselves to God is to be a living one. Our sacrifice is both a one-time act of coming to faith in Jesus and making a commitment to Him, but it's also something that takes place on a continual basis as we continually offer ourselves to Him, believing that He is Savior and Lord. It's a continuous sacrifice of all that we are to Him. The Christian life is one of a moment-by-moment consecration, sacrificing of ourselves to God, sacrificing all that we are. The offering of our bodies as living sacrifices to God is something that we must do as an act of our will. It's a volitional thing. It's not something that God works in us by Himself. He gives us grace to do this, but it's not something that automatically comes when we receive Jesus. The apostle writes, I urge you, brothers, you have to do something to offer your lives as living sacrifices. He also tells us, this is your spiritual act of worship. Paul is calling for us to act with our bodies and our souls in a particular way. We are to exercise initiative and energy. Those things are required from us. The word translated spiritual here has to do with logic and with the mind. Uh, It means pertaining to the mind. Our perpetual sacrifices are to originate in our minds, in our hearts. They are not to be muscle memory acts. That was the kind of worship that the Jews of Isaiah's day were bringing to God when he said, my soul hates your worship. Now, the church attenders of 740 B.C., about Isaiah's time, were not unique when it comes to the propensity for going through the motions of worship and service to God while not having a heart that's in what is being done. It is very easy to do religious things but to never give God that which He delights in and which brings Him pleasure. We can sing hymns, recite creeds, pray prayers, play instruments, teach lessons, and preach sermons, and do all of these with our intellect and with our talent and with our experience, and never do what we are doing out of a conscious longing to offer all that we are doing and all that we are to God as the only rational, the only reasonable response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But Paul is not simply addressing how we do churchy stuff. It's not just churchy stuff that can be done in a way that brings delight and pleasure to God. Everything a Christian does can be an offering to the Lord. For the Christian, there really isn't a division between your churchy stuff and the rest of the stuff you do, your secular life. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, the Christian offers his or her body as a perpetual sacrifice on God's altar, 
And the body stands for everything that is a part of what makes us be who we are. Our offering is our church life, but it's also our home life and our school life and our work life. Our offering to the Lord is everything that we say, everything that we do, and the heart attitude that accompanies those actions. You know, there are things that, that shock us that stick with us forever. You know, I know exactly where I was. This goes back 50 years, right? When John Kennedy was shot, more than that. I know exactly where I was. I know what time of day it was. Things that shock us, we remember forever. I had an uncle who was a general manager of a construction company in South Jersey. The company specialized in building uh, banks. There are banks all over South Jersey that my uncle built. When I was about seven, I was listening while he was engaged in conversation with my parents and other relatives in another aunt and uncle's home. And this is what I heard him say. These are, I'm sure, the exact words are very, very close. He said, I have to have a business language and a home and church language. Now, I was listening to the conversation the adults, as you know, kids tend to do, heard that. I understood what he was saying, and even at seven or eight, I could imagine what the business language was like. I knew a few of those words, but not all the ones he did, for sure. I didn't know the teaching of Romans 12.1, but I knew that what he was trying to espouse was not how God wanted Christians to live. You don't divide the religious and the home and the workplace. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, St. Paul commands this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying the most routine things, the most mundane things that we do in our lives can be offerings to Almighty God. Everything we say, everything we think, everything we do can point to the glory, the majesty of Almighty God and can be done as an offering to Him. So whether we are speaking to our employees while we're building a bank or spending time with our children or loving our spouses, or pulling weeds, or befriending a neighbor, or writing code, or preparing for a test, or tending the nursery, or attending a worship service, reading a novel, sitting and thinking, or constructing and preaching a sermon. Whatever we're doing, we should do what we do as an offering to God. Our desire should be to offer up to Him whatever we are doing, the motivation for whatever we do should be that we're offering what we're doing to God. And we should execute what we do in a way that points people to God. Uh, I've had the privilege of touring all over Europe, and uh, there are magnificent cathedrals. The cathedral at Chartres is one of the most magnificent in the world. The tower is almost 400 feet high. And you know, the story goes that the old-time stonemasons 
would carve a complete figure and set it somewhere where nobody would ever see the back side, the back part of the statue that they were carving. Chart is hundreds of statues. And the story goes that somebody asked a mason why he spent so much time on the back portion of a statue that nobody could see, and the response was, God sees it. But that used to be the attitude of people who fear God. They were doing it for his honor and glory. Since Paul borrows the imagery of the Old Testament sacrifice for all of 12.1, his word holy in the verse is most likely intended to be viewed as a Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word, which when applied to the Old Testament sacrifice is meant free for defects, free from defects. We talked about that. Makes sense. Remember, defects in an animal represented sin in the creation. One of the great themes of the book of Romans is that Christians are freed not only from the penalty of sin by Christ's sacrifice, but that in Christ's death and resurrection, believers have the power or can have the power from the risen Christ to live lives that are free from sin. I'm not going to look at the verses in this service, but you can see them all over chapter 6 of Romans. To be pleasing to God, our offered lives, our sacrificed lives, are to be lives that are free of known sin, lives where sin is quickly confessed and turned from with a commitment to new obedience. That's what repentance means. Christ gives us the power to live that kind of life. What kind of sins are you holding on to today? Usually believers have some little pet sins in their lives. They've weeded the garden of their lives of all kinds of things by God's grace. And there's some things that they are holding on to. God can give you the power as you come to this table and ask him to help you to be free of those. Open your hand and let them go. God desires you to be a living sacrifice that's unblemished by the disease of sin. As you come to this table, you're reminded that God pitied you so much when you were drowning in your sins and could do nothing to save yourself. And in his great mercy, He gave his son to die as a sinless substitute for all who believe in him and who offer up their lives to him. Think of what God the Father and God the Son sacrificed to give you eternal life. Think of the infinite mercy God showed as you hold broken bread and juice of crushed grapes. Visualize yourself as you hold the elements, lying on the altar of sacrifice, giving all that you are, your body and soul, completely to God, moment by moment of every day, as the only reasonable response for what God has done for you in Christ. And tell the Lord that that is how you want to live, that you want to live in a way that brings him absolutely delight and pleasure. In view of God's mercy, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we understand that um, there are people who find it difficult to believe the things that 
the Christian church has taught forever, the things that we say in an Apostles' Creed that was written, I don't know, about 140 A.D. Father, we pray that you would give faith to believe, and for those who are here who are struggling with Christianity, struggling with whether or not to commit, we pray that you would draw them savingly to the Savior who has been lifted up in our midst today by Scripture. We pray, Father, that they would acknowledge their sinfulness, their need for Jesus, that they would ask him to come into their lives. For those of us who are believers, Father, who have made that commitment, I pray that we would be offering ourselves now as sacrifices to you, confessing our sin, telling you that we want your grace. We want to be clean every whit, that we want to live our lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.